Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Robin Buller, your host. Today, we will be talking with Professor Anika Valka, who is joining us from Washington University in St. Louis. She will be talking to us about her book, Pioneers and Partisans, An Oral History of Nazi Genocide in Belarusia. Anika, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Uh, Before we get into actually talking about pioneers and partisans, uh, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, I think what's important for this project to know is that I was born and raised in the GDR in East Germany, a country that doesn't exist anymore at this time. Um, But that's also the place where I learned Russian. I learned Russian uh, in high school there for 10 years. Um, And then in the year of 2000, 2001, I was an exchange student in St. Petersburg in Russia which is where I encountered uh, many of the Jewish survivors of the Nazi genocide that I then began to interview and that are kind of the subject of the book. Um, so the year 2000 was a very important moment in the German post-war history in the sense that this was the first time that the German government or any German government really had uh, agreed to pay out some kind of symbolic compensation payments to survivors of uh, forced labor for the Nazi regime. Um, so that law that law was passed in the summer of 2000, and so right around after that after that time, I went to St. Petersburg, um, and I was interested in that topic because I had been um, kind of studying how German post-war society had addressed the Nazi past for quite a while, and I'd been involved in some groups um, of activists around issues of compensation and recognition for Nazi persecution. Um, so I was very curious to how to, to learn how survivors of Nazi persecution actually perceived the fact that there finally was this kind of recognition. Um, but it also came 60 years after the end of the war. Um, so, so my interest in uh, German post-war society and, and how it dealt with the aftermath of the Nazi past was very much an outcome actually of my political activism around refugee policy and asylum policy at the time. Uh, when a lot of what we see now kind of in a very intensive uh, form, um, kind of the the migrant deaths in the Mediterranean Sea, many immigrants trying to uh, reach Europe to claim asylum um, was already a problem, became increasingly a pressing issue because the European Union had uh, passed a number of laws um, and and concluded treaties to kind of limit immigration and especially uh, refugee immigration at the time. Um, And so there was a number of activists in Germany who were trying to address that issue, but also were trying to understand uh, why is that? Why do societies try to cut off themselves against immigration so uh, aggressively, if you will? Um, And so for the German context, of course, one of the contexts that you kind of stumble upon really quickly was the aftermath of the Nazi past and kind of the continuities of racism and xenophobia, (coughs) the formation of a society that kind of assumes a position of supremacy toward others. Um, so that was kind of the background of my engagement with the history of the Nazi regime. And at the same time, the late 1990s was the, the time when the so-called Berlin Republic emerged, reunified Germany, and debates about Holocaust memory were very, very um, prominent, were very much um, on everybody's mind. Um, especially after the German military, the Bundeswehr, for the first time since the end of World War II, had been deployed out of area uh, to the Kosovo, namely. Um, and, and some of those debates had revealed a continuously problematic uh, relationship between Germans and Jews. And so for me, um, going to St. Petersburg in, in the year 2000 was very much um, informed by some of these issues and trying to understand <clears throat> how do people outside of Germany, and especially in countries that had suffered from the Nazi regime, from Nazi occupation, uh, were relating to some of these debates. So as a student, I was at the State University of St. Petersburg at the time. I also contacted a number of survivors in St. Petersburg. 
um, to kind of learn how they thought about German politics of memory, about these compensation payments. Um, and then essentially started to volunteer and helping um, to provide translations of some of the documentation that people had to provide to claim some of these symbolic payments. Um, and this is where I learned um, a story of what we now call the Holocaust that was very different than what uh, most people know and that I know knew at the time. Um, so we often think about deportations from Germany from Western Europe um, to Eastern Europe and kind of the killings um, in extermination camps like Auschwitz or Treblinka or Majdanek. Uh, but the stories that I learned from these Soviet uh, survivors were very, very different in the sense that these people talked about the persecution um, of their communities and their destruction actually at home, literally in their hometowns. Um, but then, of course, they also mm -hmm. talked about the kind of post-Soviet politics of memory that were also very, very different um, and made it impossible for many of them to ever actually talk about their past. Um, and so I kind of started to interview these people because I thought at least we should document these stories um, before people pass away. And essentially became an accidental historian. It wasn't my plan at the time. Um, but so, so then I've essentially studied more and more the Soviet Union and its successor states, uh, the history and memory of war and genocidal violence in this area and in particular, I'm interested in kind of the experience, representation, and memory of Jews in this context, because as, as you may know, Eastern Europe was one of the centers of Jewish life in Europe before World War II. And um, at the same time, Jews have continuously experienced um, moments of, of policies and practices of exclusion and social experimentation. And in some ways, that, that history, I think, really challenges us to think about um, issues of multinational integration, um, but also about how institutions and individuals um, facilitate change uh, and make, make sense of the world, uh, because the Soviet history um, of communism, internationalism, but also the experience of World War II, of course, raise a lot of these issues in, in a very, very stark uh, ways that I find very important to understand. Um, so now for a couple of years, uh, since 2014, I'm on a tenure track position at Washington University here in St. Louis, where I teach um, Soviet history, um, but also have classes on the history and memory of World War II and the Holocaust and violence. Um, but we also learn about gender, sexuality, and communism and issues of migration. These are kind of topics that have uh, been on my mind for a long time, and I'm very, very glad to be able to pass on some of the um, information that I've gathered and some of the analysis that I've encountered over time pass that on to my students and now to readers. Yeah, it seems like a project that um, really has deep roots. And you mentioned that um, that you first encountered some of these stories about killings in, in people's hometowns when you were in St. Petersburg. So with that in mind, what drew you to studying Soviet youth during this period in, in Belarusia? And what questions did you set out to answer when you started this project? I mean, as I said, I met uh, a number of uh, people who would later become essentially my interlocutors, my interviewees, um, through my work in the Association of, of uh, Survivors of Ghettos and Concentration Camps. Um, and when they talked about their experiences, both of the pre-war period, but also of, of the wartime um, I really understood that there was something different than what we had known about World War II and about the Holocaust at the time, um, and was very curious to learn more about that. So in some ways, when I decided to start interviewing these people in 2001, spring of 2001 was the first time that I began to interview survivors. Um, on one hand, I really wanted to know the history of um, the German occupation, the Nazi genocide, and the Holocaust in Soviet territories, and in particular in, in Belarus, um, which alongside Ukraine, um, as, as you may know, has had actually suffered the most under the German occupations um, uh, during, the, during the Nazi period. Um, so I was really interested in how people had experienced but also understood um, this, this time of war and genocide. Um, and how they lived on after the war. So how their experiences during the war affected their lives after the war, how they rebuilt personal lives um, after often immense losses, um, but also after um, often finding new communities during the war. Um, so throughout interviewing um, people about their lives, of course, questions of memory and how do people represent their past became more and more progressing in, in a sense because 
when people talk about their lives, they don't necessarily talk about it as or in, in the same way as it actually happened. Like we have to think about why do people talk about their lives in particular ways? What are some of the um, issues that affect how people understand their lives? How do they interpret their uh, their experiences? <clears throat> and so, for me, the the question really was how do how do these um, Jewish survivors of the Holocaust remember? almost six decades after the war, I actually came pretty late uh, to them, if you will. Um, how do they remember uh, their past in a situation of intense social and political change? I mean, this was this was after perestroika, this was after the Soviet Union had broken apart, this was after the end of Cold War uh, tensions. Um, and it was in a context of, of liberalization within the post-Soviet space, if you will, of um, national identities being revived and redefined. Uh, Jewish life um, com communally as well as individually um, had really experienced a moment of revitalization after many decades of marginalization and partly state-supported anti-Semitism. Um, so, so all of these kind of played into this attempt to understand um, how people think about their own past and what can we learn from that. And I mean, oral testimony is such a, an enormously important source for Holocaust scholars, of course, um, and it can be immensely rich and at times problematic. I mean, you've already mentioned the difficulties that come with conducting interviews with some, someone about an event that happened six decades um, ago. And in your book, you're really open and candid about the opportunities and the challenges that come with working with oral material. So I wonder if you could tell us how you engaged with oral testimony over the course of your research. I mean, generally, I think we have to um, think about oral testimony as something that's actually relatively new um, as a historical method. Um, it really came um, to, to fruition as an accepted method, although there are still some people who think it's not a valid method. Mm -hmm. um, in the last few decades, um, after, especially if, if you think in terms of, of the Holocaust and, and the Nazi genocide and the Nazi regime, for a long time, the focus really was on the perpetrators and on trying to understand the system of persecution, the system of the Nazi regime and how it implemented um, its policies. Um, so only in about the 60s and 70s, so after the Eichmann trial, and in many ways, um, there were more and more scholars interested in actually the victim side, if you will, kind of the complement to the perpetrators, mm. although some of these categories, although have increasingly become uh, questioned. Um, and joined kind of a larger trend in a historical profession to think about kind of the social aspects of history, to think about um, people and their everyday life, how they experience history, how they facilitate and participate in historical change. Um, and so Holocaust studies in, in many ways has joined uh, that trend to, to try to understand how ordinary people, if you will, um, experienced um, the Nazi regime has responded to it, uh, both as individuals and as communities. Um, how did they try to survive? How did they deal with uh, loss and mourning? Um, how did they manage to rebuild their lives after the war? Um, and, and through that, also to understand how different people, how diverse experiences actually could be during the war. Often people think about one kind of role model, if you will, of wartime experience. But if you really look closely, you understand that children and youth, women and men, people with disabilities um, or, uh, who are ca capable, um, people of different classes have very, very different experiences. Um, and so oral testimonies, oral history really has um, managed to access some of these experiences that are otherwise not documented. I mean, you, you can you can go to archives and for the most part, you won't necessarily find uh, documents that would help you understand these particular um, and very diverse experiences. Right. And so for the Soviet context that I was working with, um, this was especially relevant, where on one hand, very few documents are actually left, um, were, were left behind about the experience of the German occupation generally, um, in part because the destruction uh, was, was so huge. Um, but then also the politics of memory after the war uh, did not give a lot of space to experience that were not in line with the kind of legitimate, legitimate Soviet uh, war portrayal, which very much, much focused on the heroic uh, military struggle of unified Soviet population. Um, but what we're looking at here really are um, 
people who weren't necessarily asked, who weren't members of the military, um, who were Jews, who weren't um, allowed to speak about uh, the Holocaust as an experience different than the experience of most Soviet citizens. We're also talking about the experiences of youth and children uh, who, for the most part, also were um, not really um, included in kind of the creation of a narrative about the war. Um, so there were very few documents actually are available and memoirs um, from people who survived the German occupation in the Soviet territories. Although we are actually discovering more and more materials. Um, my colleague Jochen Helbig, for instance, at Rutgers University um, has uncovered a number of uh, documents from a historical commission of the Communist Party oh, wow. um, that actually went around Soviet territories in 19, beginning 1943 and interviewing um, citizens, um, professionals who, who were there during the occupation. And wow. as I am looking at these testimonies with him together now, we actually learn quite a bit um, about the overall impact on the violence on Soviet citizens more broadly, uh, which of course Jewish citizens belong to as well. Um, so trying to pry these apart, these different experiences, is one of the very exciting moments, I think, at this point um, in, in, in scholarship on the Holocaust in the Soviet Union. Uh, but I'm detracting from your question. You actually asked me about how I did my oral history. No, no, that's it's really fascinating too because it shows that I mean, even if oral testimony is a new source in a newish source among Holocaust historians, it was being conducted long before, um, or at least during during this time period itself. But yeah, how did you go about conducting interviews and um, and using oral testimony in? In this particular project. Yeah, so I met a number of the people who would later then uh, become my interviewers through volunteering in the association, uh, where I did um, Association of Survivors, where I did some translations, but where I was also invited to join um, holiday celebrations um, on May 9th, for instance, to celebrate the anniversary of uh, the liberation from the Nazi regime but also some Jewish holidays I was invited to. I met some of these people over multiple, okay, on, on multiple occasions. Um, and then it was actually fairly easy for me to ask them if they would be willing to talk about their lives in, in some more detail with me and actually give me uh, some of more formalized interviews, which I did. I began in the spring of uh, 2001, <clears throat> somewhat, of an, somewhat of an ad hoc uh, endeavor because I had not planned to doing that project and actually had to cobble together a microphone and a recording device, <laughs> kind of the basic things. Um, but I think in the end, it, it was all a good experience because it really brought you brought me down to the basics of what does it mean to do oral history um, and think about it very carefully. How can you document people's lives um, in an ethical way with very, very basic uh, means? Um, so I started to interview people in like April 2001, and then some of them suggested, oh, you should talk to this person, you should talk to that person. But I also had a good relationship to the leadership of the association who was also willing to support me and trying to identify people um, that were willing to, to talk to me. Um, so I did a number of interviews um, in St. Petersburg in, in, in that time period. Uh, but then also came back a year later, and then I also traveled to uh, Belarus because I realized that most of the people I interviewed who had lived in St. Petersburg for many, many decades actually originated in Belarus, or what is now the Republic of Belarus. At the time, it was the uh, Soviet um, Belarusian Republic, and began to interview people there. Um, and essentially, the interviews were very, very open. I essentially let people talk um, and tell me their life stories. So I asked very few questions, um, in part because I was a scholar who had good background knowledge, but I actually knew not very much at the time about really what had happened um, in, in the Soviet territories. I was studying that at the same time as I was doing these interviews, primarily because I was worried that people would um, pass away soon. Um, so I, I asked very few questions and let people essentially talk about their lives and would then later go back and uh, have the chance to ask more questions at the end of the interview or multiple times. I developed quite intensive um, uh, personal relationships with some of these people and was able to interview them multiple times. Um, but of course, people knew what I was interested in. They knew how I met them. I had met them through the Association of Survivors. Um, so they kind of knew that I was interested in their wartime experience. And that often was the focus of the conversations. And 
in many ways, it was actually difficult to encourage people to tell me more about themselves before the war. That's um, something that I thought was actually important to understand um, because in order to understand how people react to a crisis like uh, war, like a genocide, um, you actually need to know who they are <laughs> a little bit. Um, so over, over multiple encounters, over multiple meetings, um, we were often able to come to a moment when people were really open and talking about their lives. And I think the book really um, shows that as well. Um, in the sense that it allowed me then to trace multiple people over many years that it did not start with the war in 1941 and didn't, doesn't end in, in the war in 1944, but it gives a little bit more context to also um, understand how people live with the aftermath of, of these experiences. Um, but generally, the interviews were, again, very, very open, very flexible, I did not use a camera. Um, I only taped, taped, taped them. Um, for those who have seen some video testimonies, um, you may understand that often these interviews are very different in the sense that they're more, more performance um, than an interview where for the first time people answer to some questions. Um, so I'm very interested in, in getting these um, stories, these narratives that aren't kind of pre-shaped anything else and for many people that I did interview it was the first time that they ever spoke about their lives in that way and so let's start talking about what you found during these interviews so um, your book sort of opens uh, after you discuss your methodology with uh, an examination of how the interviewees remembered life before the Holocaust which as you mentioned is is important to understand so how did they experience Sovietization um, to some extent, I have to say this was actually unplanned. I wasn't um, planning on uh, writing a book at the time at all, but I also wasn't necessarily, um, I didn't go out to interview people about their lives in the 1930s and about living as a Jew in a series of contexts, but I was more interested in the wartime period. Um, but during their um, narr narrations about uh, the wartime period, they often made references to before to the time before the war, to relationships that they had built uh, with friends, with classmates, with neighbors, with their teachers, um, people that they just encountered on, on, a, on a daily basis, and described that often as, as very positive um, experiences, as very close uh, relationships, friendships, um, but that then remained or yeah became very very important actually during the war in the sense that these people would continue to help them that they would continue to be friends with them even though the overall context the german occupation and nazi racism um actually had told people not to it had told people that jews are the enemy and needed to be destroyed um, and so I was. I became increasingly interested in, in the pre-war period as as a moment in which um, personal relationships were built that then enabled um, particular responses, and we can talk about that more uh, during the war. So I started to study uh, more about the pre-war period because uh, most of my interviews were born in the 1920s, late 1920s, early 1930s. So they were very young, actually, at the beginning of the war. Um, but they'd all grown up in what used to be the Jewish Pale of Settlement, uh, the part of the Russian Empire where um, Jewish subjects of the Tsar were supposed to live. People were not Jewish people were not allowed to live anywhere else. So it was really one of the centers of uh, Jewish life uh, in the Russian Empire. And even after 1917, after uh, in the course of uh, the, the, the Russian revolutions, these restrictions had been lifted. Uh, many Jews remained in that place. Uh, many Jews remained in the region, although many also left and moved to Leningrad, moved to Moscow, moved to Kiev, to the larger cities, uh, because they saw better opportunities for themselves there or had relatives um, that had left immediately with the revolution. Um, but so during the 1920s and 1930s, of course, in, in the course of the... Soviet, the young Soviet Union's attempt to, to build a new society, we're also looking at a process of um, attacks on religious institutions, on the, I mean, in the end, destruction of um, official public uh, Jewish culture, um, problems that some of my colleagues, like Tzvi Gittelman or Ernest Dernches or Lisa Pemperad and Bruce Loin, um, have elaborated upon very, in very, very 
detailed ways. Um, so the 1920s and 1930s really were um, well, was a time when Jewish life as it had existed at the Pale of Settlement fell apart, um, essentially. So many of the interlocutors um, of mine um, experienced the Sovietization um, process as, as, a, as a moment of secularization um, and, and Sovietization where essentially their Jewish identity didn't really mean anything uh, for them personally. Um, <clears throat> many Jews had left, uh, they moved, had moved to cities, um, but they also experienced kind of a process of urbanization, integration into Soviet societies. Um, and for many of the, of the parents of my interlocutors, that was very much uh, what was, was going on, is to, to leave what we call the shtetl, uh, the kind of Jewish communities that were closely knit, that lived according to Jewish customs and traditions. Um, but for these young Soviet citizens, uh, Jewish religion and culture was not necessarily very meaningful anymore. They, they learned in Soviet schools. Uh, they spoke Russian or Belarusian. Um, some even didn't learn Yiddish at all, which in the early 2000s, many of them regretted that they didn't know their own culture as they um, articulated it. Um, but many of them still encountered Jewish religion um, through their grandparents. Um, so, for example, Boris Galperin or Anina Drapkina, some of the um, actors, if you will, of, of my book, talk about their um, relationships to their grandparents who were still going to the synagogue on a regular basis, who were um, following um, Kashrut and so forth. But for them, that often seemed kind of somewhat mysterious and not interesting. They were more interested in being part of uh, Soviet youth culture. So they were they were pioneers, they were engaged in sports, they participated in other um, youth projects. Um, and so for them, they, they really saw themselves as, as members of, as fully re respected members of Soviet society. Um, and so in some ways, my interviews revealed that the Soviet promise of, of equality, of integration had actually worked, um, that these people saw themselves as part of um, uh, something larger of, of overall society that they saw themselves as having opportunities in terms of education and professions um, that they emphasized inter-ethnic friendships where ethnic backgrounds or national backgrounds um, didn't mean anything, especially not negatively. Um, but of course, the question also is, is that remembered as such or is that really the reality? Because we do have other scholars, we have other scholarship that talks about some of the uh, difficulties that Jews in the Soviet context experience, especially those who um, did not agree with that project, who wanted to um, remain uh, religious, who wanted to follow religious traditions, and who other people who suffered from anti-Semitic harassment at the workplace. I mean, there are there are these other narratives. Um, so in some ways, of course, I could say that um, these were young people and they went to school and for them that really was the experience that they felt um, fully included. Um, but it could also be that uh, they gave us a portrayal of the 1930s that is potentially more positive uh, than they would have said at the time because of what they experienced later um, and especially of, of what they experienced during the German occupation uh, where racism really divided people into different groups where some were supposed to survive and some were supposed to die, um, where other people were discriminated against. Um, or it could also be in, uh, in, in contrast to the post-war experience of Soviet anti-Semitism, where, where some of them actually do talk about the fact that they did not um, have access to the university in, a, in, in the way that they wanted or that they didn't get the job that they wanted, uh, but that they felt um, stigmatized as Jews in the Soviet context. Um, so in a way, the, the experience of the 1930s um, here is potentially more positive because of what came after. Um, and, and that's some of the, you know, these are some of the issues that I think about um, in the book when I, when I talk about issues of memory and identity. Um, how do people see themselves in, in relationship to, to larger society, to other people? Um, and how does that affect how they talk about their own lives? Right, so their memories of this period could almost be colored by nostalgia, if you will. Of, a, of you will. I mean, nostalgia is always often something um, or an, an affect about something that actually didn't exist, right? Okay, um, right. So it's, 
yeah, it could be nostalgia and it could be, it could be the reality. I mean, it's, um, and, and, and in some ways it is the reality because that's how they remember. So it is their reality. Right. Right. And so let's, let's move into this transition then into the period of Nazi rule. And you show how the lives of these individuals changed dramatically. Uh, specifically, you focus on the experiences of Jewish youth in the Minsk ghetto. So what were your findings about um, these ghetto experiences? I mean, you're definitely right in, in saying that the Minsk ghetto has not uh, received as much attention as many other ghettos. If we think, for example, Warsaw or Łódź in Poland or even Krakow. Um, there, there really is a, a different um, story here to some extent that is very much related to, I think, the overall context of uh, the German attack against the Soviet Union, uh, which has been discussed by many, many scholars. I'm not going into too much detail, but I think what is important to know um, and, and to be aware of as, as we are exploring our Jewish lives uh, during the German occupation is that this, this war uh, began as a surprise. Um, and again, scholars have talked uh, at length about the fact that Stalin or the Soviet government probably was aware that the German attack uh, might be might be um, impending, um, but didn't really do anything because they didn't really believe in it. Um, all of that to say is it didn't actually mean much for people on the ground. They were surprised when German troops on June the 22nd in 1941 um, crossed uh, the border between um, Eastern Poland and the Soviet Union at the time um, and didn't know what to do for the most part. There was no preparation. There was no preparation for evacuation. The Soviet military was largely incapacitated or unprepared. Um, so within very few days, uh, German troops actually had reached uh, Minsk, which is quite um, quite a distance um, away from, from the border. Uh, but within three or four days, um, air raids took place that um, destroyed Minsk um, to, to a large extent, um, and people were, were desperately trying to save their lives. Um, and the other thing that uh, people didn't know, in, in addition to the fact that this um, attack would, would happen and was a possibility, um, is that the, the German plans for the war um, were very, very detailed. Um, the so-called Generalplan Ost, or Master Plan East in English, um, was planning essentially the destruction of about 30 million people in the Soviet Union. Uh, because for them, Eastern Europe, and especially the territories of the, of the, of the Soviet Union, uh, were seen as so-called living space, as a space where they could extract um, resources for the survival of the Aryan population of, of Germans. Um, but they could also only make use of these resources if the population that actually lived in that um, space uh, was, was gone or for the most part was gone. So the, the Master Plan East uh, really operated on, on the assumption that many, many million people uh, would die, um, and especially in urban centers, uh, which um, if you look at Belarus or what is now the Republic of Belarus, um, targeted Jews uh, to uh, a large extent because at the time about 30 or sometimes even 40 percent of the population um, in, in Belarusia was Jewish. Um, so we have um, a, a war that uh, really is a war of extermination that is not um, quote-unquote just a, a war to conquer territory um, and, and over, overrun um, a certain power structure but it really was a war that was designed to destroy um, and acquire resources for somebody else who wasn't there. Um, so very, very quickly with uh, the German invasion, the, those, the policies essentially prescribed by this plan were set in place. Um, and you have uh, very quickly in the summer of 1941, the beginning um, of systematic arrests, um, detentions, um, and shootings and, and killings. So for Jews, um, especially in, in the Minsk area, that meant, uh, for instance, that in late July, the ghetto was established, or as they called the Jewish residential district, but, but factually it is what we now call a ghetto, uh, meaning about 70,000, although some scholars have very, very contradicting ideas here because we don't actually know who was there. People had tried to leave and then came back. Um, people from eastern Poland had fled uh, to Belarus after 1939. Um, but about 70,000 Jews were moved into a very small space um, in Minsk that was also heavily destroyed. 
Um, so they had to essentially find a place to live in small houses and often many, many families shared one room um, amongst each other. And as, as some of my interviews describe it, they literally slept on and underneath the table. Um, so it was a very, very crowded um, space. Um, but of course, first of all, being confined to the ghetto was based on the identification as other, as, as somebody else who doesn't belong to the rest of the population. So this really was the moment when many of the people that um, I interviewed realized that they were different, meaning that they were Jews. They were not just Soviet citizens, but they were also Jews um, that in that case um, could be persecuted um, and, and discriminated against. Um, so the ghetto was established in late July. Um, inmates in the ghetto were forced uh, to work. Um, male youth beginning at the age of 14, uh, female youth beginning at the age of 16 uh, were supposed to work. Um, and essentially only workers received food. Um, so, of course, you have a large uh, population of both children and elderly or people who are physically incapable of working um, who don't have access to regular food. Um, so starvation uh, became an issue very, very quickly. Uh, but also beginning in August 1941, you have uh, systematic killing actions, often literally in the streets of the ghetto, um, but then followed uh, beginning in, in November 1941 by um, essentially roundups of, of these districts within the ghetto, where um, on one hand in November 1st, 18,000 uh, people, and at a later date, over 15,000 people were rounded up um, and taken to shooting or killing sites out just outside of town um, to, to decimate uh, the ghetto population because German Jews from multiple German cities were being deported from their hometowns into uh, Belarusian or at that point uh, German-occupied territory um, in preparation of their extermination, of course. Um, so beginning in, in, the fall, in the late summer, early fall, we have um, a number of large-scale killing actions of local Jews, if you will, um, literally outside of town, um, which also, of course, means that locals knew about what was going on. The local population knew what was going on. And this is one of the very important differences um, between the Holocaust in the Soviet territories um, in the Holocaust, uh, let's say, in Western Europe or in Germany, where the killings didn't take place there, but far away in Eastern Europe after people had been deported. Right. Um, so in, if, you, if you look at the Minsk ghetto, essentially you get um, a sense of the beginning of the Holocaust in late summer 1941 with um, really the, the destruction of Jewish communities. Um, and that has shifted a little bit the timeline that people often operated um, upon um, of the Holocaust, of the systematic extermination of European Jewry, uh, where it began essentially with these mass killings um, with, with bullets or with uh, gas bans, but not in the gas chambers of, of Auschwitz that are much more um, prominent, that were much more knowable as what we call uh, the Holocaust. <clears throat> but so the Minsk ghetto essentially is one of the, the primary sites of this extermination into Soviet territories, uh, where especially non-workers, so women, children, the elderly, were often targeted by, by these regular raids. Um, but so by January 1943, you have about 6,000 people who are still alive, which of course is a huge difference to the about 80,000, 70 to 80,000 um, in the summer of 1941. And then in the spring of 1943, you have more and more kind of small-scale killing actions of individual worker groups um, and many people trying to, to leave uh, the ghetto. Um, actually, beginning in 1941, people tried to leave, but especially in the spring of 1943, um, there's a much more kind of systematic or almost organized um, escape uh, waves uh, out of the men's ghetto. Um, up until October 1943, when the Minsk ghetto was completely destroyed, uh, when the last 1,500 inmates were also killed in the, in the last uh, weeks um, of, of October. So in, in that, just to, to summarize this, and if you look at the Minsk ghetto that um, is kind of exemplary, if you will, for the Holocaust in the Soviet territories, somewhat different than many of the ghettos that we knew about before, especially in Poland, which often existed for quite a long time, for multiple years, 
where people were forced to work, but were often also told that if they work for the German war economy, they would survive. Although, of course, there's some, some conflicts around these issues. Um, but the other difference that you have in, in the Soviet ghettos, and in particular in Minsk, is that given the, the policies of um, secularization and the destruction of, of Jewish organized culture before the war, there is no real Jewish self-organization available. There is no organized Jewish community. Um, so people were really left to fend for themselves and had to rebuild some of these communities of support during the war. Um, and I think I think it had really an, an impact on their chances of survivals and the way that people survived um, in this context of, of immediate killing, essentially, after, after the invasion. Um, but so by late summer, early, early fall, 1941, first uh, groups of resistance actually emerged. Uh, but the interesting part is that they also often operated in, uh, in collaboration with um, activists outside of the ghetto. So with non-Jewish activists who um, both benefited from um, the, the resistance uh, cells that existed in the ghetto um, in the sense that they often brought um, or, or were able to smuggle items that were useful for uh, the resistance uh, from the workshops that they were working in, because many Jews were working in German um, ammunition workshops or weaponry workshops um, or were sewing clothing, working as cobblers. So they had access to some goods that were actually important for um, people outside of the ghetto as well. Um, but on the other hand, there was also collaboration across the ghetto fence, if you will, to try to rescue um, Jewish children um, that were placed in an orphanage just outside of the ghetto, um, but also to bring out a number of, of Jews uh, from the ghetto and then try to place them into partisan units that had emerged outside of Minsk. Um, so there was very, very quickly, there was this recognition that we have to do something and we have to figure out how to save people uh, because the campaign took place so quickly. I think people realized that uh, this was not just, um, just in, in quotation marks, of course, uh, a prison. Uh, it was actually um, a place that served a different purpose uh, in the um, extermination. Um, and so in, in, in the chapter, uh, you will read a lot about ways that people tried to save themselves. Um, often that included hiding in so-called malinas, which are kind of hiding places built in attics and basements behind fake walls uh, so that they would survive some of the roundups um, in the ghetto. Uh, but you'll also read about escape attempts, so people trying to leave the ghetto. Um, and the focus, um, of course, uh, given my interlocutors, is uh, youth and children um, who suffered from this persecution, uh, but who also had some chances to survive. So essentially, one of my arguments is that youth and children were, on one hand, the most vulnerable, but they were also the most resourceful um, inmates of the ghetto, and most vulnerable in the sense that they, of course, were targeted by these killing actions because they were not working um, and they were starving. They were affected by hunger in, in very, very, very good ways. Um, but they were also very mobile. They could slip through the ghetto fence. Um, they could beg for food outside of the ghetto. They often re received help from friends, uh, from adults, um, and, and so had access to uh, means of survival that adults didn't necessarily have, right? So... Uh, many of the orphans uh, that I write about really talk about some of these experiences of trying to save themselves and um, how they interacted with some of the resistance efforts uh, that did exist as well um, in the ghetto. Um, but they also talk about the rescue operations um, that were put in place by a number of different actors uh, within the ghetto and for which actually many of the children themselves were very, very important because they were often the ones who were leading people out of the ghetto uh, because they could slip through um, ghetto fences and other issues. And how were the experiences, these more urban experiences of persecution, uh, you know, rescue, escape, how do those compare to what you found about uh, experiences of destruction in Eastern Belarusia? So the Minsk, as I said, existed from the summer of 1941 uh, to October 1943, so a little bit over two years, um, which meant that for, for people who had work um, and who managed to survive, there, um, often the, the, there was a chance to survive, especially if they managed to, to escape um, in, in 1943. But many of the rural areas, um, especially in eastern Belarusia, which is one of the, the foci of, of my book, uh, the ghettos that were established there 
if they were established, often didn't exist that long at all. Um, in many ways, they were, or in many places, they were established essentially a day or two before people were rounded up um, and taken to the execution. Um, and in part, that is because the <clears throat> um, rural areas in the eastern Belarusia, or even even the somewhat more urbanized places like Babrysk, um, had very few industrial facilities um, left. Um, so forced labor wasn't really something that the Germans were interested in there. Um, so in many places, the, the local population was asked to just continue to work as they did. Um, but often there was no kind of structured um, exploitation um, for the German war economy like we had seen it in Minsk. Um, and, and labor work, like cleaning the streets, um, cutting trees and so on were often more used as kind of a form of punishment, but not because they were actually seen as useful. Um, so Jews in that sense, in the German logic, weren't useful. They weren't necessary as labor at all. They were they were merely um, a population to be destroyed. So beginning in um, the fall, early fall 1941, many of these Jew, of the Jewish communities, uh, meaning often the 30 or some so percent of local populations were rounded up um, and shot literally right outside um, their hometowns and forests um, at pits that were dark uh, day before or kind of anti-tank trenches uh, were often used to this used for this. Um, so the killing there began very quickly in fall 1941 and in most places actually was concluded in the spring of 1942. So the majority of the Jewish population that had fallen under German occupation um, had been exterminated by the spring of 1942. So in that sense, Minsk is actually already an exception, even though it's already been uh, in, in ghettos in Poland. Um, but so you essentially have a situation now where almost every small town, village even uh, in, in the Republic of Belarus has a killing system. Um, somewhere nearby, uh, has mass graves nearby who are often not necessarily marked. Um, that's kind of an effect or result of Soviet politics um, of, of memory after the war. Um, and so one of the, the things that um, scholars are currently doing, and I hope to some extent my, my work contributes to that as well, but there's also a French organization called Yahad in Unum that some, re- some listeners um, may be aware of, are trying to document these sites, are trying to mark these sites and then try to figure out who was actually killed, where and when, because in many ways we don't know that. Um, so there's often survivors like uh, Grigory Ehrenborg, um, one of the... Um, actors in, in the book who don't know exactly when and where their relatives died when they were killed and don't have a place to go to, if you will, to um, to grieve, to, to mourn uh, the losses. Um, so that's, again, an, an issue that I'm trying to discuss. What does it actually mean if you know your, your relatives are dead, but you don't know where they are, you don't know how they died? Um, and that's a very troubling question, I mean, for all of us, I think, just to imagine that. So what does that mean to not have um, a place, not have certainty about uh, death, about loss? Um, and how does that impact the way uh, in which people talk about these experiences? They often um, barely escaped, um, essentially, right? Um, so on one hand, the, the destruction in, in the rural areas took place very, very quickly and in very, very brutal ways that are often not necessarily documented. Um, and on the other hand, in, in terms of survival, were um, in Minsk, um, as I said, many people were able to leave the ghetto. Uh, we're talking about approximately 10,000 people who managed to leave the ghetto. Um, but in, in these rural areas, that was much, much more difficult. And very few people managed to flee, often literally from the site of execution, and then managed to survive uh, in hiding or as part of the Soviet partisan movement, um, which I think we can talk a little bit talk more about. Yeah, perhaps we should move on to the, to the partisan movement, actually. It's a great transition. Um, I found this section particularly uh, fascinating. So what were the... Um, experiences of, you know, some of these these people who were at the time Jewish youth in the Soviet partisans, and how does that fit into um, your arguments about identity, you know, Soviet identity, Jewish identity? I mean, the Soviet partisan movement, um, which is essentially for American listeners who, who don't know what partisans are, they're essentially guerrilla fighters. These are essentially people who are not necessarily trained uh, militarily, 
Um, but beginning in the summer of 1941, the Soviet government encouraged uh, people behind the front line, so civilians, but also especially Soviet soldiers who had been separated from their units, to take up the fight against um, the German occupants. Um, and in the end, there were about 380,000 people who were fighting in the partisan movement um, <clears throat> in what is now the Republic of Belarus. Uh, so these were people who were essentially hiding in the forests, in the swamps, uh, who were living in dugouts in, in, in the woods, uh, who were collecting food wherever they could, often from local populations, which um, is laden with conflict, as you can imagine. Um, but so over, over the years, this became a substantial movement of people being essentially behind the front line and sabotaging the German occupation but also then becoming more and more relevant for the Soviet military as, as a decisive factor. Um, and so many Jews who, who were able to flee the ghettos were trying to join these the, the units or detachments of the partisan movement because they knew that this is essentially the only place where they can survive, where um, you have access to food and basic necessities, but you can also defend yourself um, against uh, the German uh, military if you will. But unfortunately, many Jews were not able to um, be admitted into these uh, units because some com com commanders uh, were anti-Semites, they didn't like Jews. Some didn't want to burden themselves with civilians who were not trained um, in, in military combat, uh, who would slow things down, who didn't have any skills that were necessary to, let's say, place mines um, and so forth. Um, so very few Jews actually managed to in be incorporated in these units. Um, as a, as a result of, and I guess some people would have been very young. Some of the people that you, some of them were very young. I mean, some of them were fourteen by the time fourteen, fifteen. But yeah, they were also very, very young. Um, so some people that I talked to managed to um, access one of these these units and then um, participated in combat there. Uh, which for the most part, I would say in terms of their, their identity kind of reinforce their commitment to the Soviet state and reinforce uh, kind of their Soviet identity uh, rather than the Jewish identity, which really had brought them there in the first place because they were uh, persecuted as, as Jews. Um, but then on the other hand, there were also a number of people who didn't find access to these uh, units. So there were some Jewish um, combat units that were um, established by people like Hirsch Kaplinsky or Israel Lapidus, some people may have heard of. Uh, but there were also a number of um, people who really weren't able to participate in combat, like children, uh, people who had been um, hurt, um, or women who were not didn't feel comfortable in that sense. So there were these so-called family units, Jewish family units um, that some of the listeners may have heard about in terms of the so-called Bielski unit. Um, was the subject of Nehama textbook uh, Defiance, which then also was used to uh, make a film with Daniel Craig in, in the leading role. Um, but so I'm writing about one particular um, Jewish unit um, under the leadership of Shalom Zorin, which was um, established near Minsk, I mean, still 80 kilometers um, from Minsk, but close by enough that people could reach it on foot uh, from, from the Minsk ghetto. Um, and in the end, there were about um, 600 Jewish civilians, if you will, in, in this unit, uh, 280 of them were female, 240 younger than 20, um, and also many, many orphans, um, about 30 to 40 orphans, which were often under 10 years old, who kind of survived in this unit um, as, as a place of, of rescue. For, for them, it was really the safe haven. Um, but at the same time, this unit also fulfilled a very important function for the Soviet partisan movement as a whole, in the sense that they um, provided food, they had a dairy, they had a mill, um, but they also had cobblers, they had locksmiths, uh, workshops. Uh, so they prepared ammunition and clothing that was then useful for uh, Soviet combatants of the partisan movement. Uh, they had a hospital, they had very, very important medical aid which was provided in this unit. Um, so the, the unit was both a site of rescue, but also of support uh, for the Soviet partisan movement. Um, and for many of my interlocutors, it was also the place, I think, where they really realized uh, that they were part of a Jewish community because it really was a Jewish unit. Um, so in, in a way, you kind of have uh, the opposite uh, experience um, compared to the rural areas in eastern Belarus, where before the war, you often had kind of remnants of uh, the Jewish community, of kind of the shtetl life, 
uh, but where survivors of the killing actions often only found rescue in the Soviet units where they often had to disguise their Jewish identity. Um, but here you have the opposite, where you have an urban space before the war where people had essentially given up on, on their Jewish um, identity for the most part. Um, but now during the war, we're kind of re- rediscovering uh, that Jewish identity. So the Desoran unit um, is an interesting case study, I think, um, both of survival, but also of the creation of identity um, in, in the face of extreme violence. And then your conclusion brings us back to, uh, you know, what happened to the memory of this event, this trauma, um, as well as resistance and rescue uh, in the after the post-war period. So what can you tell us about how how these survivors, how these Jewish youth um, experienced memory of the war, memory of their trauma over the next few decades? I mean, concretely for members of, of the Zorin unit, uh, it's actually a very, very unfortunate um, story in the sense that even though in the, in the Soviet Union, the memory of the partisan movement, um, of the military struggle against the German occupation was very, very important for the kind of reestablishment of Soviet society and Soviet identity. Um, the Desorian unit, but also the Bielski unit, were not recognized as uh, part of the partisan movement because the argument was that they did not participate in combat. So for members of, of this unit, that meant that they were not recognized as so-called veterans of the war, uh, which meant that they did not have access to particular subsidies. They didn't have access to um, special support um, to address wartime damages like uh, losing property, although for most of the youth that wasn't necessarily relevant. But many of them had been severely traumatized. They had lost their, their whole families and they could have used some extra support, I would say. Uh, but many of them didn't have access to that. And of course, they also weren't recognized um, um, in, in, in Soviet society um, as kind of full members of society because the assumption was that they had just essentially waited out um, and let other people fight for them, uh, which of course is not true. I mean, the Zorin unit and the Bielski unit and a number of other of these so-called family units um, provided very, very important um, support for the combat. Um, so in, in my analysis, I really think about both the repercussions of anti-Semitism in, in Soviet society uh, that worked often with the stereotypes of Jews as, as not capable, as, as effeminate, as not capable of military struggle and so forth. But I also think about the impact of notions of gender, of, of how particular kinds of labor, and which what, what I describe here as re- reproductive labor of providing food, providing medical aid, providing uh, clothing, but also taking care of orphans, taking care of people who are abandoned and have lost their, their whole family, um, is not valued in the same way as the kind of very spectacular and visible kinds of resistance uh, like uh, the partisan uh, combat that, that blows up trains and, and kills uh, German military. Um, so in that sense, I'm ending kind of the book with uh, rumination on Soviet post-war memory um, and how it has excluded particular experiences, and in this case, of course, in particular Jewish um, experiences after genocide, but I think also in other ways you can transpose that to thinking about how generally uh, civilian experience or the, the experience of women, the experience of elderly, of children, um, are often written out of history uh, when we think about how war is remembered um, and how societies think about war and, and what is important. Uh, we actually think maintaining uh, community, maintaining uh, the, the very basic uh, conditions for survival is, is equally important as defeating the enemy. Right. It's it's a really fascinating analysis. Um, Annika, we've we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, but before we go, uh, I want to know what you are working on next. Yeah, as I said earlier, I think some of the local communities um, that I've explored in this book. Um, are, are still uh, a gap in Holocaust scholarship. So I'm still working on some of the more rural ghettos, uh, but I'm also very interested and much more interested now in generally how local communities uh, react to, to the German occupation. Um, so issues of collaboration, local responses to uh, the persecution of Jews is something that I'm, that I'm interested in. Um, and related to that, I'm part of the Holocaust Geographies Collaborative, uh, where we're trying to develop a, a database of Holocaust um, t- Holocaust period ghettos all over Eastern Europe. 
which is a large undertaking. It will take a few years. Um, but personally, also my, my major uh, concern, my major project right now is actually to think about the aftermath of the Nazi genocide, uh, in particular in, in Belarus after World War II, um, because I think we still have a lot more to understand about how communities deal with the fact that 30 to 40 percent of um, their members um, are, are gone, that there's huge population losses. And to some extent, these um, people who have been killed are buried right outside of town. So what does it mean to live uh, near these mass graves? But I'm also looking at the destruction of cultural heritage, in particular Jewish heritage, of course, um, and environmental destruction that has happened during the German occupation. Um, so in, in, in other words, I'm trying to understand how did people rebuild the society after the war um, and how did they deal with some of the divisions uh, that had emerged um, during the occupation, but also how did they address some of the shared um, experiences of, uh, of, of the German occupation terror, of hunger, of environmental destruction and so forth. Um, so I've been uh, doing a lot more research in Belarus um, concretely recently visited many of these sites and a lot of archival research kind of building off of my my earlier work if you will yeah it sounds like it sounds like an appropriate sequel uh to this project i look forward to reading it and to having you back on the show when uh when it's out hopefully that's great <laughs> i'd be happy to do that <laughs> well anika it's been wonderful talking to you today thank you so much for joining us on the podcast it was a pleasure to talk to you great take care that was Professor Anika Valka joining us from Washington University in St. Louis. She was talking about her book, Pioneers and Partisans, an oral history of Nazi genocide in Belarusia. Thanks for listening. <laughs>